You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So one night last week, uh, Melissa and I, we, we went out to dinner at one of our favorite restaurants, and we left uh, a little later than usual, thinking that we would dodge the crowd, which didn't really matter. We got there, and as we walked up to the door, maybe because it had been so cold and finally people were out, um, it was later, but it was packed. The place was jam-packed, full of people. Uh, there were people standing by the doorway, everyone shoulder to shoulder right in front of the hostess. And so we had to come up and, and sort of squeeze, squeeze our way in through the crowd to get to the hostess. We put in our name. It was a 25-minute wait, which was, which was fine. And so we kind of stood to the side with everyone else, and we began to wait. And as we were we're passing the time, uh, Melissa and I, we started just checking out the different tables in this restaurant, and we, we were guessing which one of these tables would be available first. You know, we were, we were trying to guess which one of these tables would be offered to us, and, and as we were looking, of course, we, we had our own preferences. We, we didn't want the table too close to the door. Uh, we didn't want the table in the middle of all the other tables, uh, but then as time began to wear on, we, we just needed a table, and, uh, and so we were basically standing there asking, wondering, where is our place here? We were in this crowded room, right? This was a crowded room. People were everywhere. There was the rumbling of like 100 conversations happening at one time, and we wanted to know Where is our place in that? It's the same question that the church has to ask in relation to society. When it comes to the church as an institution, I'm talking about the church as a a corporate body of believers, the local church. When it comes to the church, where is the church's place in the crowded room of modern society? What is our place, and what do we do there? Well, I think the Apostle Paul answers that question in today's passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And if I had to summarize our place in one simple sentence, this, was, this would be how it goes, okay? The, the church, our place, the church is meant to be the agency of good, in society. And Paul gives us three practical ways in this passage for how the church does this. And I want to just go ahead and tell you what they are. All right. Number one, as the church, number one, we seek the good of all people by prayer. Number two, we aim for the kind of society that allows us to thrive in godliness. And then number three, We live ultimately for the pleasure of God. And we're going to look at each of these three things, but first let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, again in this moment, we come to you and we ask for your help. Our our hearts, God, are, 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 we want to be open now. Open our hearts, God, our minds. Open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us today in your word. We ask that you would feed us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So the church 
is meant to be the agency of good in society. And how we do that starts with, number one, we seek the good of all people by prayer. And I want to show you where I'm getting this. It has to do with how this passage is working in the context. Remember that Paul is writing to Timothy. And we've already seen in chapter 1 the things that Paul is saying directly to and for Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus and stop the false teachers. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul entrusted Timothy with the charge to wage the good warfare. And so Paul, we've seen, is talking to Timothy about things that Timothy must do. But then a change happens here in chapter 2, verse 1. Because now Paul is starting to talk about the church. Beginning here in chapter 2, Paul is actually writing about the church and what the church is supposed to do. And that's this whole section here in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 13. And Paul is going to talk about corporate worship. Paul is going to talk about the offices of elder and deacon. But first, Paul talks about the church's place in the context of her surrounding society. That's what chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 are about. And when Paul's talking about the church in the context of society, he really just tells us to do one thing. Basically, there's just one command here for the church in this passage. It's found there in verse 1 where Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is the first thing that Paul says about the church before he gets into anything else, which means this is important. This is like, this is top of the list stuff when it comes to how Timothy is meant to lead this local church. It's kind of like Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, before we get into the nuts and bolts of how we behave within the church, let me tell you about the church's posture toward the outside world. The first thing I want to do is urge the church to pray. Make all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And when Paul mentions in verse 1, supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, he's talking about here the whole package of what prayer is. Paul uses these same words interchangeably all throughout his letters. And the only real difference here is, is the word for thanksgiving, which means to give thanks. All the other words are basically synonyms, right? It means Paul's just talking about praying, pray, as in petition, request, intercede, come to God on behalf of someone else, and then also give thanks. In this list here, Paul is trying to be comprehensive on the subject of prayer. He is talking about every type of prayer, and he says they should be made for every type of person. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 1. I like how he says this. Verse 1 is, pray every way you know how for everyone you know. And this means if we just were to step back for a minute, Paul is telling the church to seek the good of everyone around her. To pray this way for others is to seek their good. These are positive prayers that are meant to be helpful. Paul is showing us that the church should have a giving, serving, loving stance toward her neighbors. And we know this much from Jesus. 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that we as the church are the light of the world. And because we're the light of the world, we should let our light shine. We should let our light shine so that the world can see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. And then if we combine what Jesus says, what what Paul says here, we understand that a central part of the light shining, a central part of our good works is praying. And, And this is actually a theme in the Bible that goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Remember that in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and he says, I will bless you to be a blessing to others. Abraham and his offspring are chosen by God to be a blessing to all people, right? We remember this in the book of Genesis. Now, fast forward a little bit to the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 19. This is after God has rescued Israel from Egypt, and he's about to give them the law. And God tells Israel that as his people, they shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, of course, we know that Israel doesn't do a very good job of being that kingdom of priests. The the rest of the Old Testament basically shows us the failure of Israel to be that kingdom of priests for the good of the world. But that doesn't mean that God's purpose is lost. Because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah looks ahead to a future day and he envisions this day when indeed God's people will be a kingdom of priests. In Isaiah 61 verse 6, Isaiah is talking about the whole people of God and he says, but you shall be called the priest of the Lord and they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. And then in the New Testament, the apostle Peter is all over this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is talking about the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and he says about the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And we can hear the echoes of the Old Testament in Peter's words. He says that we, the church, we are priests. In this moment, right now, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church together, we right now, as a corporate body, we are a royal priesthood in this world. And what do priests do? They pray. They pray to God on behalf of others. Priestly duty means coming to God for an effect on someone else. And that effect, connecting back to Genesis 12, is meant to be a blessing for all people. We as the church are to seek the good of all people by prayer. And my guess is you already know this. In fact, I... I would, I bet that, that most, I mean, I bet um, a lot of unbelievers that you know probably know this. I wonder if this has happened to you before. Maybe, maybe you have a coworker who knows you're a Christian. They know that you're doing the whole church thing. They're not really interested in the whole church thing, but then there's some crisis that comes into their life, right? Some really hard thing 
happens for your coworker and they know you're a Christian and so they come to you and what do they ask you to do? Say it. Pray. They ask you to pray for them. And you should pray for them. And then you should go tell your community group to pray for them. And then you should tell more people in the church to pray for them. And the church should pray for them. We as the church should pray for them. We are, as the church, we are meant to seek the good of all people by prayer. All right, that's the first thing. Now the second thing. The second way the church is the agency of good in society. Number two, we aim for the kind of society that allows us to thrive in godliness. And I realize here I have just mentioned the word society again. And before I do anything else, I should probably explain what I mean by the word. Okay. How do church and society relate together? All right. And just so you know, I just need to tell you, um, hang with me here for a minute. Okay. I am going to try to channel my inner Joe Rigney. Okay. So let me, yeah. Here we go. All right. When I use the word society, I mean the conglomerate realities of life in a certain time and place that cooperate with some form of order. Okay. I'm using society in a broad sense that includes values and institutions, which means society includes both culture and government and the church. And when I say church, I'm talking about visible local churches. Local churches are part of society. Local churches help make society what it is. And that doesn't mean that Jesus is over one and not over the other. Jesus is over everything. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, which means Jesus is sovereign over society. It's just that the church is the only part of society that recognizes that right now. One day, every part of society is going to recognize that. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But right now, right now in this moment, Jesus rules over the Twin Cities and we, we are the institution in the Twin Cities that recognizes that. And we live our lives like it's true. Okay, that's, that is what we're doing here as a church, right? That's what this is all about. We are the institution recognizing, bowing to, living before the rule of Jesus in these cities. Now, notice verse 2 here. Paul continues the sentence from verse 1. Make all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. So Paul is talking here about government authorities. And those authorities are an example of the all people in verse 1. There's an implied connection here between the two clauses. Paul is saying, pray for all people, such as kings and all who are in high positions. Pray for everybody, including 
governors and presidents and kings and so on. Right? That's what Paul is saying here. And pray for them, Paul says, for a purpose. These governing authorities are part of society and they have a big influence on society. And so we should pray for them for this purpose, verse 2, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is a really deep move by the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying, in summary, pray for government leaders so that we, the church, can live in peace. And when he does that, it means he's simultaneously saying two things. On the one hand, Paul is affirming the reality that government impacts the church's life. The state matters. Decisions of the government have an influence on society that affects our church. Paul shows us that here. He's saying that here. That's on one hand. And then on the other hand, when Paul tells us to pray for the government, he is showing us that although the government has an impact on us, we have a higher authority than the government. We don't pray to the government. We pray to God about the government, see, which means, yes, church, the government matters. The government is important. And yes, church, you answer to a higher authority and you should pray to the higher authority about the lower authority for your benefit, for your good. Again, verse 2. The purpose of these prayers is so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, what, what does that mean? I don't know about you, but when I hear peaceful and quiet life, I imagine, I think about one of those Corona commercials. You know what I'm talking about? The guy's... He's just sitting back on the beach, you know, he's staring out in the ocean, he's kicked back, he has no worries. I love those commercials. You know, I don't actually know what that's like in real life, but it looks peaceful and quiet and warm and relaxing. The sunshine is just, you know, basking on his face and there's a breeze and there's some birds singing in the distance and... It seems really nice. Is that that what we're aiming for? Is that the goal of our prayers? Is Paul telling us to find our own beach? No. The answer is no. That's not what Paul has in mind. Look at the rest of verse 2. He gives us more of his vision here. We want to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, which means the the, the peace and the quiet are for being godly and dignified. And those words are important. Paul uses the word godly over and over again in his two letters to Timothy. And it carries the idea of just straightforward Christian conduct. Godliness is the most basic way to talk about living a life that is congruent to the gospel. And as for the word dignity, it's only used three times in the whole New Testament, twice to Timothy, and then once to Titus. And it just simply means respect. 
which implies a context where other people are looking at you and making some type of evaluation. And that means that peaceful and quiet cannot be secluded on a beach somewhere. Paul is not saying that the church is supposed to be an isolated community tucked away from the surrounding world. Instead, Paul is talking about the church within the world. The church is part of society, and the church has a mission to society, and that mission, in summary, is our godliness. Now, what does godliness entail? Well, godliness includes priestly work of prayer, but then it goes far beyond that. Our godliness in every way means that we are completely surrendered to the lordship of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. It means your decisions, your entertainment, your bank account, your ambitions, your marriage, your children, your parenting, your neighboring, it all belongs to Jesus. Godliness in every way means you know, you know, and you live like Jesus is Lord in your home, in your family, with your friends, in your car, at your work, in what you say, what you hear, what you think, what you do, where you go, who you love. It all belongs to Jesus. And when we live this way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course we're sharing the gospel and making disciples, and caring for the needy, and bearing burdens, and loving one another, and helping the weak, and investing our time. That's what it means to be godly. That's what godliness is. And a lot of people, they would want to call that sort of thing radical Christianity. It's just godliness. The Bible shows it's just, it is simply faithful Christian living. This is the life that is congruent to the gospel. And without a doubt, that kind of life means good for all people. The church's godliness is good for society. And so we should pray for our government so that its influence in our society does not get in the way of our godliness. That's what Paul is saying here. We pray for kings and all who are in high positions so that they don't interfere with our calling to live under the lordship of Jesus. We aim for the kind of society that allows us to thrive in godliness. We want the kind of society that allows the church to be the agency of good to that society. That's what Paul is saying here. Led by the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's point, led by the Holy Spirit, although for a lot of church history, this has just not been the case. In just a couple years, after Paul writes these words, he is killed for his faith. Paul was leading the church to do good in the Roman Empire. And the Romans took his head. And getting beheaded is not a peaceful and quiet life. And so what do we do with that? What do we make of this? Well, it gets into the topic of suffering and persecution. Suffering and persecution, which Paul says, 
is guaranteed for the Christian life. In fact, this is fascinating because there's a direct connection between suffering and godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Affliction will come. You will suffer affliction if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Whether it's from the government or from somewhere else, suffering will happen. But by definition, suffering is never something that we want. What makes it suffering is that we did not ask for it. Look, we are asking for wide open space for the sake of our mission. We don't want trouble. We don't want hardship. We just want to follow Jesus as truly as we can in our society and in our lives. Paul says, pray for that. Pray for that. Ask God for that. We want the kind of society. We want the kind of setting where we can thrive in godliness. We want obstacles We want obstacles to get out of our way so that people can see Jesus. And then sometimes God puts obstacles in our way so that people can see Jesus. See, we we want peace and quiet, and that's right. But then the God who moves in mysterious ways sometimes gives us something different. How many are there? How many of you in this church have asked for and hoped for something and God has given you something else? How many of us in this church on the path of obedience to Jesus have found ourselves in places we never wanted to be? We wanted a good thing. Like we wanted a good thing like a mission trip to Spain. And instead, we got a painful thing like a Roman sword. I know that is many of you in this church. And I want you to know we see Jesus in you. Although it's not the way we wanted it, although we we never asked for it this way, people can see Jesus in your godliness, in your suffering. When it comes to society, Paul tells us to aim, pray for, aim for the kind of society that allows us to thrive in godliness. Paul says, pray for that, and so we should pray for that. And that brings us now to the third and final point. The church is meant to be the agency of good in society, and we do that when, number three, we live ultimately for the pleasure of God. That's verse three. Paul says, verse three, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. When he says this, What's he talking about? Does he mean the praying? Does he mean the peaceful and quiet life? Does he mean our godliness? What is Paul talking about when he says this is good and pleasing in the sight of God? Well, I think he's talking about the whole thing. 
The whole scenario of the church praying for all people, for kings and those in high positions, so that we are allowed to thrive in godliness, all of that, Paul says, is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And I think that tells us two things about God. The first thing is something that Paul spells out in verse 4. And then the second thing is an implication. And I want us just to look at those quickly here. First, we see here that God is the God over all people. That's verse four. The reason that God is pleased with prayer for all people is because God, verse four, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God cares about all kinds of people. And so God is pleased when we pray for all kinds of people. And Pastor Josh next week is going to get into this um, because this is really one passage together. But right now I want you to see because there is only one God and because Jesus is the only way to God, that means that God must be the God of all people. That's the logic that Paul is working with here, which means we must not belittle God by acting as if his supremacy does not apply to someone or as if his salvation cannot be extended to someone. God is the God of all people, all people, Jew and Gentile, American and Russian, rich and poor, black and white, presidents and lunch ladies, ENFJs and ISTPs. God is the only God, and God desires that every type of person be saved. And so he is pleased when we pray for every type of person, including governing authorities, so that we thrive in godliness. All of that, all of that is pleasing to God because God is the God over all people. The second thing we see here, we learn in verse 3 that God takes pleasure in the things we do. And that's worth some thinking. You've probably heard before, you have a category that Christians should please God, right? We, we use this language often, right? Paul says this a lot in his letters, like in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. He says, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that whether... We are at home or away, whether by, by death or by life, we make it our aim to please the Lord. So Christians, we know Christians are meant to please God. We want to please God, and we get that, right? We get that. But let's think about it, okay? What does this mean? Paul has already told us in chapter 1, verse 11, that God is happy. Remember, it's, it's the glorious gospel of the happy God. God is happy in his essence as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is fundamentally full of joy in his Trinitarian community that does not need anything outside of himself. The joy of God's essence is matchless, eternal, wonderful joy. And yet, Paul says, we can do things that please him. We can lead, we, us, you, we can lead our lives in such a way that brings joy to the God who is infinitely 
joyful. We can make decisions. We can take actions that delight the heart of God. And isn't that what really matters? I mean, isn't that the thing that that matters more than anything else? Isn't that the main thing that sets the church apart from everyone else in society? It's that we as the church, we live ultimately for the pleasure of God. You have to imagine, okay, society is like this big crowded room, okay? A big crowded room, there's people standing everywhere, people standing by the doorway, everybody is shoulder to shoulder, and there are a hundred conversations happening at one time. And in that room, in that crowded room, we have a table. We have a place in that room. The church has a place in that crowded room. God is sovereign now over the whole crowd. God is sovereign over the whole room, but we are the ones in that room from our place who recognize that. And the most basic thing we do in our place, in that room, is we live beneath and unto the joy of God. From our place in that room, we know, we know we are here mainly to please God. And so from that place, in that crowded room, living unto, living for the pleasure of God, God calls us to be the agency of good to everyone else in the room. And as the agency of good, it means first, we want to pray for all people. We want to seek the good of all people by prayer. And then secondly, it means we want to aim for the good of of this entire room, right? We want to pray for and aim for the good of this room so that it allows us to thrive in godliness because, this is the reason, because we live ultimately for the pleasure of God. That's what it's about. That's what we're doing here. And that's what brings us to the table. Because at this table, we are reminded that the only way we can bring joy to God is because of what Jesus has done. It's because Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. At the cross, Jesus took all of our sins. And he, he died for us in our place so that now, in this moment, by faith in him, we are forgiven And we are counted righteous. We can please God now because at the bottom line, God is pleased with us because of Jesus. We don't work for God's pleasure in our effort to please him. We work from God's pleasure in our joy to please him. And that's what we remember as we take the bread and as we take the cup, and so the, the servers can come and prepare the elements. And as we serve them, if you are here and you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. We will serve the bread first. His body, the body of Jesus, is the true bread. Let us serve you.